welcome to Demand and Disrupt the Disability Podcast. Here, we will learn to advocate for ourselves and each other. This podcast is supported with funds from the Advocato Press based in Louisville, Kentucky. Sandra Williams is a retired instructor, mother of two, and grandmother to three girls. She enjoys reading, writing, singing, cooking, and traveling, not necessarily in that order. Thanks for joining us, Sandra. Thank you so very much for having me. So in your chapter in the book, you start out talking about your parents. Now, um, your, your father was blind. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And that was from a rare genetic disorder. Is that right? It, it, yes, it's quite rare. It's called Peter's anomaly. And of course, back then in 1935, when he was born, no one, no one knew that really then he was just blind and he was the only one of his siblings and in the family tree to that point that was blind and he was born totally blind. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I know I know a thing or two about genetic disorders. Having one myself, they can when they, when they crop up like that, you've really got nothing to fall back on. No way. And it, gosh, mine was in 1990. I can't imagine 1935. That would be terrifying. And yeah. your and your mother was not born blind. Is that correct? Well, she was born blind, but she oh. didn't have to. It it was a it was a tragedy I guess at birth okay Um, tell me about that yeah tell me about that well my my grandparents um lived in the western part of the state um Bowling Green to be exact and um my mom Bowling Green Bowling Green being where I am right now so my apologies for my city But um, they lived there, and I guess this was 1941, and when it came time for my grandmother to deliver, um, my grandfather took her to the local hospital there, and they were denied entrance to the hospital because of their race. Um, wow. He was sent back home, and... <laughs> had to use a a midwife and when the midwife delivered my mother she apparently um, used the forceps too tightly and put them around my mother's head and squeezed thereby damaging the optic nerve Um, Mm -hmm. and my grandparents found this out um, when my mother was a little bit older and they apparently brought her to Louisville um, and had her eyes examined because to look at my mother's eyes, they looked perfectly normal. Um, it was that the optic nerve was damaged when her head was held too tightly. Hmm. Wow, that, that is tragic. And so you were born where, where were you born? I was born in a small town in Illinois, Lincoln, Illinois, and my 
entrance into the world was, I don't know if it was remarkable or not, maybe because, you know, both of my parents were blind. So even though it was, oh my, I'm going to say the year, even though it was <laughs> 1964, um, the race thing was still very much a thing. So that being the case, because my mother was afforded the opportunity to go to the uh, local hospital. However, I'm not certain they wanted it known that my mom was at the local hospital. So my birth certificate says that I am, um, I'm white. Wow. And uh, yeah, huh. as hmm. does the sister next in line to me. So I'm not sure they wanted it documented, you know, that people who weren't white were afforded the opportunity to have a baby in that hospital. Wow. And, you know, th that's not that long ago. That is a, a tragically short time ago for that to still be happening. So um, the the shadow of racism is is long and I think I don't think we've seen I don't think we've gotten out of that that terrible shadow yet. Um, so and you and your sisters did inherit the genetic disorder from your father. Is that right? We did. Um, I learned later. I started trying to do research on this disease when I was in college the first time. Um, and back then there was not a whole lot. Um, but it was at that time when I first started doing some research, it was known that it was a condition that took place in the first trimester of a woman's pregnancy when the eye is developing. When the eye develops, there are, it, it's developed in stages and there are parts of the eye that are supposed to be separate from one another, the lens, the cornea, the iris, they're all separate entities. But in this genetic defect, they don't separate and the eyes um, can be fused together. Now, when that happens, that I don't know if that's what causes the glaucoma, but um, the, the fetus can have in utero glaucoma. Now, my eye was separated more so than my sister. So when I was born, my eyes looked like eyes, a distinct pupil, a distinct iris, the white part. Um, they were distinct and remained so for quite a lot of my life. They are not so now. Um, but when my sisters were born, their eyes were all over a blue color meaning that they had had the glaucoma in utero and that their um, separate parts of the eyes were not so separate. So it meant when they were born, they saw less than I did. Hmm. And um, you, you were saying, so at what age did you become sort of, I guess, legally blind or blind to the point that, uh, 
life as normal was going to have to change? Well, I don't know if I ever had normal. I think my normal uh-huh. uh, was so much different than what others might consider to be normal. I grew up, or even as a young child, I realized I might be different when I was about three, three and a half. Up until that time, I thought that all daddies had guide dogs and that their guide dogs helped them get to work. I thought that all mommies read bedtime stories with their fingers. I didn't know. (laughs) Uh I had a rude awakening when some kids across the street that I snuck out of the house to get to um, and tried to play with said they didn't want me because I was blind and your mommy's blind and your daddy's blind and we don't want you. And and so I was about three and a half and I and I ran home crying, asking my mom, you know, am I blind? What's blind? <laughs> and so, yes, she explained about seeing um, at that time. My vision, I remember not long ago reading some old papers from when I was in elementary school. And at that point, uh, my vision, I wasn't legally blind. My vision had said I was 20 over 100. Um, when I was 18, I started having severe headaches and whiteouts where everything would just go like a, a, a white fog and I couldn't see anything. Um, I was probably 15 and a half or 16. We had moved to Kentucky by then and I was taken to the Lion's Eye Institute by um, some school personnel um, to figure out what was what might be my problem after they figured out I wasn't having a nervous breakdown I was mental down <laughs> yeah they thought such um and went in and found out that I had exceedingly high eye pressures I mean a pressure mm-hmm. in a person's eye should be about 12 14 mine was 65 so wow. it was causing pain and I was put on some medication and at that time it was supposed to be the end all be all in you know helping to treat glaucoma so I took pills and I took eye drops and you know to try to maintain the the vision I had as well as to afford me some comfort pressures that high are not comfortable and you later found that one of the adverse effects of one of those drugs was uh, infertility. Is that right? Yes, that's the only thing my um, my doctors could figure because all my pieces and parts were in working order. There should have been nothing to prevent me from conceiving. Um, however, I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. through a list of any and every medication that I had ever taken um, and the finger was pointed at a particular pill that I took to um, help with the glaucoma. And of course, you know, the glaucoma doctors either didn't know or might have figured, hey, she's blind. She probably won't have children. I don't know. But there was nothing ever said to me about that medicine um, might cause an infertility issue. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But you are in the book. Um, 
a celebration of family stories of parents with disabilities. So you did begin your parenting journey. Um, you want to tell us a little about that? I began my parenting journey when I was really young. Um, I saw on television a news story about a baby that needed a home and the baby was blind. And it's funny that baby is in another chapter in the, in the book, but <laughs> I, I saw that and I was looking at that on television with my mom and I said, one day, you know, I want to do that. But I tried everything in the traditional way. I got married. Um, my husband and I talked about having children. We attempted and it didn't work well uh, because I, I, I just could not, uh, I couldn't conceive. Went mm -hmm. to doctors, did all that temperature taking and everything and, and, and it didn't happen. And at the same time, I was going through more stages in this vision loss. And at that time, you know, I had had a cornea transplant and a, a cryosurgery, which means pretty much a needle is inserted into your eye and they freeze it to try to get your pressure to go down. Um, so I'd had some surgeries. I, I didn't do too well with that as far as my attitude. I was just sad and angry. I was still in my early 20s. My husband didn't do too well with that, apparently. Um, we didn't do well with it together, and, and he went away. Mm. And so I had deal with that. And I was still very, very young. By this time, I'm in my middle 20s. Well, I tried to do the marriage thing again. And this time, the person I was married to um, wasn't able to have children. But we had agreed before the marriage that we would adopt. So I was thinking I was gonna, you know, live that uh, adoption dream I had. Um, so time went on and on. And my vision got worse. I had a couple of more transplants, a couple of more glaucoma surgeries. Um, and we went, we were in Kentucky by this time, because when we, my second husband and I moved to Illinois for a while, um, but we moved back to Kentucky and went, decided to go through the state's adoption program. So as a couple, we went in and we really were not met with any, um, issues about because he was visually impaired as well we were not met with any real discrimination um, on the basis of our vision we went in there just like every other couple with the hopes of bringing home a child not necessarily a baby so we went through the classes and I guess we finished those sometime in 1990 uh five into five first of 96 and I don't know when it got really close to this baby or little person being in our lives my husband told me he was going bowling but he never came back so that was a little painful wow. um, uh -huh. yeah so I asked the instructor of the class I said well when I get my life together, because after you go through a divorce and you've been married a while, you know, you built up things, a house, uh, you know, all that. And I, I lost all that. So I said, when I get my life together, will I 
be able to do this as a single parent. I was told that I would. So I said, okay. So after he left, I spent the next probably three years um, rebuilding my life, Um, Mm -hmm. working, saving, finding a better, uh, well, a place to live that wasn't my really nice house. And and just, just trying to, you know, take the steps, um, you know, talking to someone and just trying to heal. Mm-hmm. Before I thought it was a good idea to bring a little person into my life. Mm-hmm. And when you did, you got a son. And when, yes, mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. And he um, he had some challenges. Is is that correct? My son had some challenges. I when it came time for me to think about this again, it was 1999 and I called the state and asked, you know, what I needed to do to get back on the list to adopt and everything and they said, "Well, hey, we have a new set of classes and if you want to take these classes, um it's called concurrent planning and if a child is placed with you, you will have uh, the first opportunity to adopt that child. So you would foster and then you could adopt. Would you like to go through the classes? And I said, eh, okay, why not? So I went through the class. That was probably four or six weeks. And I got out of the class on, it was probably January, January something. And um, of the year 2000. And I didn't think too much about it. And I went through some difficult times then. Um, my, my, I just started a new job working for the city of Louisville. I was actually on the mayor's personal staff. So I just started a new job. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, passed away, had to deal with a funeral. And a week after she passed away, her sister, one of my great aunts, passed away. And then after that, a week after that, uh, a very dear friend passed away. So I was mm-hmm. taking funeral leave and everything. And then I get a call from the state. Hi, we have a boy. We think he's blind. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, give, give the blind woman the blind baby. Yeah, I'll take him. <laughs> and, you know, it was probably Jin February 27th, 28th, almost the end of February. And they called and I said, okay, what, what do I do? And they said, well, we'll bring him to you. Wow. That's interesting. We'll bring him to you. So, you know, I didn't have anything because they told me this baby was going to be nine months old and the only thing I had in my house I had a bassinet well nine months old (laughs) they can't fit a bassinet I had a little rattle I didn't that's all I had and I thought oh what am I gonna do and I was friends um with a lady who had fostered probably at that time around 300 um babies who all were high risk feeding tubes, um, everything. She, she took all sorts of babies so they wouldn't have to go into the local 
for lack of a better word, orphanage. Um, mm-hmm. And she and her husband adopted them. So I called her. I said, do nine-month-old babies eat food? What do they <laughs> eat? What do I need? I was totally panicked. And it was about 10 o'clock at night. She said, let me find someone to watch the kids. And she had two or three babies at that time. And she said, I'll be there. So she came over. She took me to Kroger. And we bought baby cereal and baby food. And, you know, so very early in March, I think it was around March 3rd, I went home from work and was waiting for this baby. And a state car pulled in front of my house, knocked on my door and said, are you Ms. Williams? I said, yes, I am. He's like, here's your baby. And he put this thing into my arms. And I thought, <laughs> this is kind of big. <laughs> and he had a hefty cinch sack. And he said, here's this thing. So have a nice day. Now, this thing he placed into my arms was soaking wet. He'd been at court all day. That's the process. They have to uh, do a process and, and put the baby into care. So. There I was standing in my tiny little living room, looking down at this human being. I could still see some. And it was love at first sight. He had the big eyes and the long lashes. And as I looked at this human, I mean, that my heart just overflowed with, with emotion for this baby. But I knew in that same instant that there wasn't, everything wasn't as it should be. I could feel that the bottom part of him was heavier than the top part of him. And no, not because he was soaking wet, but I wasn't sure. So I put him on the couch beside me and I figured nine months old should move around while I'm trying to change this diaper, but he didn't move his legs and he didn't move anything from his hips down. He would wave around with his head and he didn't make noise. He nine months old, supposed to coo and gurgle and um I'd worked in a a a preschool so I I knew about kids and this one didn't do what kids should do um so I spent that afternoon trying to learn this little human and first thing I did I got a bottle wasn't sure whether you were supposed to heat up a nine-month-old bottle or not um but I did and I put it in his mouth And the lid, oh, I'm so embarrassed. The lid promptly fell off. So I pretty much almost. (laughs) (laughs) What do I do now? So I picked him up and I um, took him in the kitchen. I didn't have a baby tub because I didn't even have a bed at this point. And I put him in the sink and I washed him off. I washed me and dressed us Mm -hmm. and everything and. Later, my mom came and I'm like, here, mom, what, what do I do with it? And, um, <laughs> and um, she too noticed that he wasn't doing um, what, what a baby at nine months should do. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, what ended up being, was there a diagnosis of, of something going on? When he was about, I did foster him for quite a while, but he was about 13 months I took him to a neurologist because I knew something wasn't right and I put him in our um, first steps program um, program that works with babies little people who are 
not developing as they should. So I put them in first steps and in VIPs, visually impaired preschool services, because they, he had a severe, severe nystagmus, meaning that the eyes just bounced around um, and could not focus. So he was in that. But they recommended that I take him to a neurologist. So I did. And, you know, there's the room in the hospital. If you had anyone in the hospital, you know, the room. And after they do the test, they call the family to the room. Well, I was by myself. I did most of this by myself. So I went to the room by myself, very nervous, sitting across from neurologists. And those individuals can be somewhat intimidating. Big words, uh, that attitude. And he looked at me and he said, you know, he said there was water on, you know, in his brain stem. He said it would probably be okay, but he said my son would never walk, talk, or know who I was. He also said that no one would fault me if I just gave him back. And I, I just sat there, you know, the stomach dropping, that feeling, and and I said, where's my baby? And they went and brought him to me. And I picked him up, held him in my arms and walked out of the hospital, got on the bus and went back home, knowing that I was not giving this baby back, you know, if I were afforded the opportunity to adopt him, knowing that I would do as a parent, whatever I needed to do to help him uh, thrive and develop to live the best life he could. That is amazing. What what year was this that this happened? Uh, he, 2000. And, 2000. Wow. He, yeah, 2000. And a doctor thought it was okay to completely dismiss a, a human being or, or a woman's feelings about that. Um, that is truly incredible. So let's fast forward and, and tell me how is your son now? I know in the book, you say he, he did walk and he does know who you are. So tell us about that. It's just, he knows who I am. Um, <laughs> a lot of, I, I was, I was fortunate and blessed. I, I had a lot of awesome supports, you know, my parents, you know, supported me and, and absolutely. I ended up naming my son, Sean Michael. Um, oh, that's pretty. They adored Sean Michael. Um, and my sisters adored on Michael. Um, and, you know, he, he didn't walk when he should have walked. He was about to pass. Um, and we were in a doctor's office waiting to fit him for another pair of braces. And I had to put him down to dig out my insurance card. And I, he could stand by me, but he would never walk. So I stood him up by my, by my knee. And I was digging in my purse for the insurance card. And I reached out to find him and he was gone. (laughs) And so I started sobbing in in the orthopedic office because he had walked. And that was the first time he walked. And once he walked, even though he wore braces, you know, he, he wanted to go. He wanted to roll balls. He wanted to, 
So he got a basketball in his hand when he was probably three. Um, I, he started preschool at three. Um, at about eight, I put him in Special Olympics and he did bowling and he's done something with a ball that either rolls or bounces or is pitched ever since that time. Um, he did pretty well in school. I mean, he was on the alternate portfolio. So, and um, we won't even talk about my feelings about that, but I felt as if very diligently, he remained on honor roll all three years of middle school, sixth, seventh, and eighth. And it was awesome sitting in that middle school gymnasium when he graduated from eighth grade. And he was the only student in the ECE uh, program who had maintained grades for honor roll. He was only one of about eight or ten kids in the whole school and that was one of the biggest schools in jefferson county so i was <laughs> i was a little bit proud um he did a lot of things that no one thought he could do one time in school there was an announcement and it said apparently that if anyone wanted to try out for the uh, african-american history month program they needed to raise their hand and their teacher would um, let them know what to do. And my, the teacher called me and she said, Ms. Williams, Sean raised his hand, but the school has never let, I didn't like the word let, never mm -hmm. let a child from my class participate in the assembly. And I said, my child will participate. If he tell him what to do, I'll help him if he gets picked, yay. If he doesn't, that's okay. But he should be afforded that opportunity. So he had to memorize a portion of Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream Address. Mm -hmm. Well, I helped him with that. And we were so tired, you know, and we were going on, created equal and all this thing. And they had been also talking about Abraham Lincoln. I said, Sean Michael, we're going to do this one more time. Then mom has to go to bed because we're too tired. <laughs> he said, tell me, tell me the address. And he said, four score and seven years. <laughs> <laughs> and went on to talk about, Mar he had combined the two addresses it was it was awesome but the next day after we tried out um the teacher called me and I guess Sean was probably fifth grade fourth or fifth grade um the teacher called me and said Sean had memorized more of the I had a dream speech than any of the other kids who were not in an ECE classroom so when I was sitting out there in that audience I was of course sobbing again there was my kid, the first ECE child um, in the big program. He had on his suit and tie, and I was a proud mama. Mm -hmm. He got to be the first, his class got to be the first kid that went on this major field trip to Washington, D.C. Now, they were a little scared, so I had to be a chaperone, and they said, well, you can't just chaperone your own child. You have to have two other boys. I said, give them here. 
Um, mm-hmm. And they were not ECE kids. They were just little bad boys. And um, we got along just fine. Thanks to Sandra Williams for joining us today. And thanks to everyone else for listening. Bye. Thanks to Chris Duncan for our theme music. Thanks to Steve Moore for our providing our transcription. Support comes from the Center for Accessible Living in Louisville, Kentucky. And you can find links to buy the book, A Celebration of Family, Stories of Parents with Disabilities, in our show notes. Thanks, everyone. Just for once I think I would agree to me.